Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We are excited to have Jason Brazier with us today. Jason, welcome to Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for having me. Jason is a longtime friend of Matt Cox. And I, I just did an interview with Matt Cox just, just a few weeks ago, actually, and we posted it. And uh, he, he recommended that I talk to you, Jason. Oh, well. And so uh, I am, I'm, I'm happy to reach out. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, how you met, met how you met Matt Cox. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I grew up in a small town called Willow Springs and here in Missouri and South, uh, South central Missouri. Yeah. Kind of down that, uh, toward West Plains type area. Um, a little bit South West, a little bit Southwest. Yeah. And, um, have always just kind of been into theater. I'm not a very unapologetic wrestling fan, pro wrestling fan. Um, and actually that's what started my whole journey with filmmaking was choreographing and directing and writing um, these uh, backyard wrestling matches. And Matt was part of that. <laughs> and uh, that led to me actually getting involved with live theater as an actor. And that led to me directing my first play, which was the Hobbit. And then from there I got into, um, into filmmaking and, enjoyed the process and just kind of told myself the more I did it, the better I would, the better I would get. And, um, the, um, the, the better I would get at it. Sorry, my daughter was just in here staring at me, <laughs> but the better I would get at it. And I kept on just kept making films and kept writing and just trying to learn. And, um, that was my, um, kind of the whole, background of how I got started. I mean, there was some basketball in there too at some point and, uh, basketball. I, yeah. I love basketball. Still uh, like basketball. So did you um, play basketball? I did for a while, but then, um, after two knee injuries, I was pretty much kind of done with it. Okay. Um, the reason for that was I was told by the coaches that I didn't know what, real pain was and i'm thinking i've been in surgery twice <laughs> and so it just wasn't i wanted to be a part of a basketball team like my dad had been a part of when he was in high school and they went to the state and had a good camaraderie and it just wasn't the same and i didn't want that and so i chose a different path all right so i just got to ask you real quick if you still like basketball oh i love basketball do you like college basketball Depends because I had to a lot, a lot of college basketball. I worked a lot of ESPN games and stuff. Um, and I would watch a lot of MSU Missouri state because I was always having to record them. So I followed them all the time. 
I, I like the NBA, but it's not what it used to be. Um, but I've always been a 76ers fan. Okay. Um, my dad, when he taught me basketball, would show me old VHS tapes of Julius Irving and Daryl Dawkins and all those guys. And he would show me that's how he learned. Those are his favorites. And I just kind of, you know, <clears throat> grew up liking the Sixers. And then Allen Iverson came along and, you know, I followed him pretty hardcore and still have a couple of Iverson jerseys actually. And, um, you know, I try to keep up with it as much as I can, but yeah. Yeah. I just curious. I, I, my dad played uh, NAI basketball and then I grew up, he started taking me the NAI NAI national basketball tournament in Kansas city when I was a little kid. So I followed NAI basketball for years. And then I went to Baylor and, you know, Baylor for the first time and, you know, Baylor was founded in like 1845 and we just, we just won the national championship for the first time in the history of Baylor. Yeah this past spring. Right. And we're ranked number one in the nation right now. <laughs> so it's a good time to be a Baylor fan. <laughs> anyway. Well, so, um, all right. So you got into wrestling, got you into theater, mm-hmm. like, like pro wrestling. Yes. Got you into theater, which is, <laughs> which I can't imagine that there's like tons of that, that, that angle to that story out there. I don't know. Maybe there um, is, maybe I'm wrong. There, there is people always try to say that rest, pro wrestling is fake. I never saw it as that because I started watching how they fell and I started seeing how they, it kind of re- looked like they fell, like how a stuntman would fall sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I just started studying it. And I started realizing that pro wrestling is, was a live action choreographed stunt show. And if you, so it was part athletics, athleticism, mm-hmm. part acting, and part stunt work. Yeah. And if, you know, there's, and I would hear terms like, you know, wrestlers who could lose good. I didn't know what that meant. And I started realizing it was like you were making, there, there was a way to lose a match and make it look awesome. And still you would come out, even if you lost the match, you would still look good. And yeah it became just a, I became fascinated with the art form of it and just started studying it and then started writing and directing and choreographing our own matches and choosing silly wrestling names. And, you know, so it really wasn't that hard of a transition to go from that to being on stage and then behind the scenes. Well, so I got to ask you who your favorite uh, pro wrestlers were when you were, oh. when you, when you, when you first, started watching and getting into it your early favorites i grew up in what was considered the monday night wars between wcw world championship wrestling and world and the world wrestling federation which is now world wrestling entertainment i would have my favorite i would i would flip back and forth because i knew they were watching each other and if somebody did something over here i knew somebody was gonna try to do something crazier on this channel just to get more ratings on WCW, I love Sting, and he's still wrestling. He's in AEW now. Um, Sting was awesome, and um, I love you know that era. Who, who didn't love Stone Cold Steve Austin? He was the guy who was the storyline of sticking it to the boss, you know. And you know that storyline people can identify with on some level. And 
Vince McMahon played the evil boss to a T and you just got into it. It was just fun to kind of get lost in it and kind of like a movie, you kind of suspend your disbelief. And, and then in doing that and losing your disbelief, you realize that they just got you if you know what's going on. And that, 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 was like very respectful to me. Like, wow, you guys actually, I forgot about what you, you guys are choreographed all this or we're calling it in the ring, if you will. That's what they mm-hmm. do a lot. And it was just exciting. Uh, the rock was awesome. I love the rock triple H. Uh, my favorite was Cactus Jack. And uh, he was hardcore. He was also known as mankind in WWF for a while. And um, he had another persona called dude love, but I really didn't care for that character, (laughs) but cactus Jack was his character that he took to Japan. And he was in the King. He was in the Jap uh, was the uh, Kawasaki dream uh, King of the death match tournament in Japan. And he got in this fight with Terry Funk, who I also love Terry Funk. And it was, they didn't have ropes. They had barbed wire around it. And they had barbed wire boards that had little concussion things. Like if you stepped on it, it exploded. And some people don't, some people thought, oh, that probably, it's just probably powder. Mick Foley, you know, Cactus Jack, he got third degree burns from it. And made that match just look awesome. <laughs> and, from, and to this day, I'm sure Matt by, by camera going, yes, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, oh. you Nick know, Foley is, was a, a guy. I mean, he was amazing. And the fact that he can still walk <laughs> right now um, is amazing to me. And I hope I can meet him someday because he's one of those wrestlers that I just want to be like, you were amazing. You yeah. Know, the entertainment value and the stuff, the work that he did to make people believe was just amazing. Yeah. So, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, I, I just thought it was fake. I didn't watch it much, but then, uh, at some point it's been a long time ago, but at some point I started appreciating the, the talent, the skill, the the choreography, the acting, the whole, just the whole thing. And I realized too, that, that, the guys were a lot more athletic and skillful than, than I'd first ever imagined. Right. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like you kind of start realizing that the reason they have wrestling school is because if one of them, you're, you got to protect each other and your job is to make the other person look good or get them whatever the whole thing is in the match, but you got to know how to do it correctly. Cause if you don't do it correctly, you could get hurt. Yeah. You know, and when you see accidents happen, it's unfortunate, but sometimes accidents do happen. I mean, I was just at a match a couple of months ago here in Springfield because they were showing the flying Greek trailer actually at this event and they had a, te- um, it was a Texas death match. And I was thinking, Missouri has some strong rules against blood. So I don't think we're going to see any blood. Well, somebody got pile driven on a chair and it had a piece the little bitty metal piece sticking up and this guy's head got oh ouch and he he was on the other side of the ring but he got up and i thought maybe he had like crawled into the ring and had done something and then i saw him up there when he was wrestling and he wiped his face like this and then it just came down again i was like oh he has got to have a concussion 
and it was an accident. Um, but the, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty rough. So accidents happen. That was an unfortunate ask accident with just, you know, yeah. uh, hair that was looked at. But. I have a buddy who, um, was from a small town in Kansas and this Kansas state champion wrestler. Um, I think maybe two or three years in high school. And then he, um, then his brother was a Kansas state champion wrestler. And then his, his dad was also a Kansas state champion wrestler. So it was one of the, it was the only family in Kansas that had, uh, three family members all be Kansas state champions in high school. And then he went and wrestled at a college in Missouri. Um, gosh, darn it. I'm going to blank on, uh, the name of the college. It's not Missouri Western in St. Joe. It's a, it's one out by Sedalia, Missouri, but uh, I forgot the name of it. Anyway, one of the Missouri state colleges, he wrestled there, but he, he met Bobby Lashley there. And, uh, and I've met, I, you know, I know Bobby, I've talked to Bobby many times. Uh, and, uh, he's a, he's a, he's a big boy. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's, he's a big boy. You know? At any rate. Um, yeah. That's the only, that's the only pro guy that I've ever met and talked to the pro wrestler anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, it's all good. I've met, I've, I've met a couple. I mean, Chris Jericho, I've met a couple of times. He was one of my favorites and, uh, he's still wrestling today. And, um, actually Medusa who narrated my film, you know, I grew up watching her and here she is narrating my documentary and oh, sweet. Know, she's become like family. And my daughter calls her aunt, calls her auntie. So, yeah. 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 So, um, so you, you had this tall, small town experience, you got into wrestling that got you into theater. So you said you direct the first theater that you directed was the Hobbit. I did the Hobbit. I was a big Lord of the Rings fan. Yeah, me too. Uh, I love the extended cuts. There's me no too. <laughs> I watch all the time. And yeah, I bought the box set, you know, so I could watch all of that stuff. Yeah, I've got the versions that they don't have anymore, where it looked like the books, like the old books. That's what I got up. I got it. <laughs> Those are awesome. I love. Uh huh. Them. Yeah. Yeah. And, um. I, I, I wanted to do fantasy. I hadn't done fantasy. I had done, you know, I had really, as a kid, tried to make scary movies. And here I was thinking I was going to do Dracula, but then I thought, oh, The Hobbit, that would be a real fun challenge. And it was, it was another learning experience. Um, and as Matt will tell you, the Star Theater is an old silent film theater that's not that big. It probably seats about 200 people, maybe 300, but I think that's pushing it. Um, and, the so you have a very small stage to work on and all these, my producers came in that first week and they handed me a book of this and how to direct a play. I knew what they were trying to do and I appreciated it, but I wanted to do completely the opposite of what every play had done in that theater, just to be different. I apparently made them mad because I tossed the book over my shoulder and said, here's what we're going to do. I was doing that as a way to excite the cast and crew. Oh, we're going to do something different. Great. My producers didn't show up until tech week, four weeks later, I had to take care of everything for four weeks. I was in high school <laughs> and it was a big learning experience because we had a big falling out me and one of the producers after that, because they were trying to, you know, blame a lot of stuff on me that was kind of on them for not showing up, but you know, you live and you learn. And 
um, that was a experience that kind of I'll never forget. Yeah. So, so you, so you started, um, man, you've got, I mean, you've got so many things like filmmaker, documenter, documentarian, writer, theater, poet, educator, <laughs> abstract artist. Oh, you've done your, you've done your homework. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's, uh, there's so much stuff here. Did you, did you end up going to college? Did you study? With, I did. did you study acting or theater or directing uh, my, or writing? What was your, was uh, my, my degree is in mass media production. Um, and I did that instead of just a straight up film degree because I wanted to have broadcast experience in there so I could do film and broad TV broadcast, um, which served that, especially if I was going to stay around this area, it was going to serve me better you know, to have that kind of diversity. Um, and while in college, I did a little bit of my own stuff, but a lot of it, I didn't really direct anything until after I graduated. Well, I did. I mean, I take that back. I did a documentary in 2007 on my own. That really wasn't a student film, but I did it as a student. And it was about my dad's basketball team in Willow that went to state and got screwed out of the championship. And that was called the champions. And that's actually on YouTube. You can watch the full film hmm. and the uh, I was kind of more like a fly on the wall in college and watching people and just trying to, what do I, what, what do I need to do? Oh, I like what they did. Oh, I won't do that. And I was just kind of making notes to myself. And then right after college, I started um, doing what they, the early version, versions of what they would call web series, you know, and I did a, fake rockumentary that was kind of a comedy um, called the sessions and then that led to me doing a post-apocalyptic western series called drifter broken road and drifter lonesome highway so um it just kind of stair step and slow slowly built from there and i just you know um so you know i always kind of felt like you know, I did really good on that, but I know I learned a lot on this project. So I know the next thing I do can be, is going to be better. Mm -hmm. so that was always kind of exciting. Cause I was always like, I don't know what challenges we're going to face and how to get this one shot that I want versus, you know, um, having all the money in the world doesn't mean that I'm going to get that shot still. Right. So I kind of like that rogue independent spirit about filmmaking in general. Mm -hmm. And just trying to make it happen. I think that's what I love about it the most is kind of that aspect and camaraderie of your cast and crew of like, how can we make this work and how can this be really good? And because on the day you get there, 90% of the time, something's going to change and you're going to have to adapt to a situation. And I saw too many filmmakers in college who did not want to adapt. And yeah. I think, I don't, I don't like toot my own horn, but like, I feel like that's what's made me more valuable to even clients doing client work is I'm very flexible and adaptable to whatever happens, what we need to do to still get the best product, you know? And um, it just makes sense to me. Yeah. So which college did you go to? Uh, Missouri state university. Okay. Mm -hmm. In Springfield. Mm -hmm. All right. And um, who, who were your, influences for filmmaking who were your influences for documentaries who 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 have been some of maybe your mentors you know kind um, of thing. 
early on in film, and Matt will know this, <laughs> John Carpenter definitely was a huge influence early on as a kid. He still is. Um, I love his films. And Sam Raimi was definitely one. Clint Eastwood. Um, Sergio Leone. Now, that's these were the ones who first started really inspiring me, but I loved, I started really falling in love with classic cinema. And I started like loving the works of John Ford. I started loving the works of. Um, Man, uh, my dad's a John Ford fan, even though David. he wouldn't even know it. But all the movies <laughs> he loves are John Ford movies, you know. <laughs> well, then, then I started really diving into, um, you know, I love the film Casablanca and I love Michael Curtis who directed that. And I watched a couple of his films and it just kind of snowballed. Yeah. And. I would uh, say Casablanca is a great, great film. Oh, it's fantastic. And mm. for me, if I look at how things are now and where I'm at in my career, those were the ones that started it. I would say I'm very influenced by um, Louis Boonwell. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him. I don't. Um, tell me about him. He was a surrealist. He did a lot of films. Like he did a film with Salvador Dali his first film and it was a silent film and it oh was called Unch, I'm a, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation just because it's I know I am <laughs> Unshayan Andalu which translate I think was an Andalusian dog the film makes no sense it is literally just an absurd piece of visual art and it's actually just a dream Mm-hmm. And you've had those if you've ever had a dream that's made no sense that's what this short film was mm-hmm. and people try to find meaning in it and there's no point to it yeah and so people would say well this is what this means and then you had salvador dolly and louis boonwell just kind of laughing about it because like no that's not there's no point <laughs> you know and so it was always kind of fun to see that interpretation i didn't get it in college because i my, i wasn't there yet but um i get it now more than i ever did um, after I started doing some abstract art, it just started making sense to me um, with my abstract paintings. But um, Louis Bunuel, um I love Ken Burns, but he's kind of an acquired taste for a lot of people just because he doesn't leave anything out. Like that's why he does series is because he can't. <laughs> I don't think he could make a movie that fits within an hour and twenty minutes. I just yeah. don't think he can do it. And, you know, I, I own, I have most of Ken Burns's series up in my library right now. Yeah. Well, his I, stuff is always, I, it's amazing. I love Mark Twain, the one he did on Mark Twain. Yeah. I, that, I haven't seen that one yet. I need to see that one because I'm a one. Missouri guy. One of my favorites. Yeah. He, I love, I love the, the dust bowl that he did. I loved, um, Pro one he did on prohibition. Prohibition, right? Always fun, and it's just a you know, I'm a visual guy, and I was always that guy in high school when it was time to watch a documentary. I got more out of that, yeah, than reading the history book because I'm yeah, a person, and so that's why I like him. Werner Herzog. I loved, I loved his national parks. I, oh yeah, I was. A I loved, uh, yeah. of course, I I love the jazz. I like jazz anyway. I've always been a oh, jazz yeah. fan. I loved his oh, jazz yeah. series and ba- baseball was fun too. Anyway, I like them all. Yeah, I really don't. I haven't disliked one yet. You know. Yeah. Okay. Well, Warner Herzog was is yeah a lot of great documentary. I love Grizzly Man that he did. That's still one of my favorites. Um, 
Yeah. Especially, especially the ending, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can see that one coming, you know, that it it, it had a lot of foreshadowing. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, (laughs) yeah. But you know what though? The way he did the ending though, and how he edited it together made it poignant because he was trying to help the lady let go because she still had the tape right and that's traumatizing you know but it's but what makes it so hard sometimes is warner he's got that thick german accent and so even when he's trying to be helpful it sounds like he's still angry (laughs) you're like he's like you need to stop and it's just like calm down he's like i'm not yelling um but his films are always a great watch um gosh um there's so many like guy madden um he is an experimental art house filmmaker from winnipeg manitoba and Mm, i don't know him i watched i actually the first film i heard about him was called um brand upon the brain it was a feature-length silent film, so I'm thinking, what? <laughs> and this is back in 05, I think. 04, 05, something like that, when I heard about it. But what fascinated me was he was doing this silent film, but they had a live orchestra playing, and they had live Foley artists making doing sound effects. And then every now and then, he would write a narration, so it was kind of like a live experience. And I was like, that's so kind of cool, you know, kind of taking old school things that people aren't doing anymore and make a new experience with stuff that you filmed and it's taking me 10 years to find a copy of that film Hmm. because it's now out of print at the moment through a criterion collection. But, but I found a copy on Amazon like a week ago, Hmm. 30 bucks. And I'm hoping it's brand new, but at this point I don't care but it should be here by Christmas. And I'm very excited about that. Nice. Nice. And I actually interviewed him a couple of months ago um, on a, um, as part of a experimental film online film festival I was doing. Hmm. And so I interview him and he's kind of become a little bit of a mentor. I never had one. I always wanted one, but I've asked him a lot of questions and he's been able to just be brutally honest with me and talk to me about things. Hmm. And, he's kind of a renegade when it comes to filmmaking. Cause he, he loves narrative film, but he always, all his films are so different. Like he did one called my Winnipeg and he was trying to mythicize Winnipeg, Manitoba. And so it's about him going through his mind on a train, looking and reliving these memories, but some of the memories are not exactly accurate. Hmm but he keeps him there and it made it kind of a really fascinating, you mm. know, study mm. of how we look back at where we grew up. And mm. that's one of my favorites, but he's, he's, he's definitely been a huge influence, especially in the last few years. Um, and gosh, I could go on forever. I, I love, I love Peter Jackson just because he's so, creative and how he does things. I mean, Lord of the Rings, but if you watch um, one, uh, they shall not grow old, his documentary he did on world war one, the, with what, how he used the technology he created from his movies to use and re-enhance film that had not been seen in a hundred years. Hmm. 
it was silent film and he had people do professional lip reading hmm. and they would go through and they would pick out people and they would see what they were saying. And then they would go and find what regiment those people were from. And they would go get actors to come in and do the voices to what they were saying. So he was able to add sound to film wow. and just very awesomely ghostly. And I just, you hmm. know, I have a lot of respect for him and what he does. That's wild. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, those are the, the main, yeah. few. if we go into favorite films, it's a completely different <laughs> yeah, yeah. topic, but. Well, that's fun too, though. Oh, favorite yeah. film. <laughs> I could do that too real quick, but I want to get to the, the flying Greek, but let's do Yeah. Tell me, tell me a couple of your favorite, I, you know, favorite films is like, you know, doesn't it change a little bit? I can tell you my top two. Yeah. They have not changed that much. Really? Okay. My top top five changes a little bit. Yeah. But um, Dr. Zhivago, which um, from 19, the film from the sixties that David Lean directed. Yeah. Omar Omar Sharif. Yeah. I've watched it. Um, I absolutely just love that film. Mm. I just, the production of it all, like the grandness of it. And I'm just fascinated by a love story set during the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. It just fascinated me. And um, the set design, like I remember the house being all iced over, but that was all wax that they had dripped to make it look like all ice. And I love that. My second one is once upon a time in the West and and, uh, Charles Bronson. Um, Yeah. Those two films, completely wow. polar opposites, but just the camera work is such um, very influential on me. Beyond that, I go, I, I could get into um, some Louis Boomwell films like um, The Exterminating Angel that he did. I don't know that people are trying to leave a house and they can't leave the house. They don't know why he never explains why, you know, it's some supernatural thing, but it's never acknowledged. And they start, it's just, it's so absurd, but it's actually about how ridiculous the high society people can be. That's what his whole thing was. Um, uh, Last temptation of Christ. I absolutely love that movie. Um, I was told as a kid, I should never watch it. And I'm glad I finally did. Mm. I understand why some people don't like it and that's fine. But I felt like I had more of a spiritual experience watching that film than I did with passion of the Christ. And it was just because of the humanistic side of Jesus that a lot of people don't focus on. Right. I love that movie for that. Um, You know, I love my Winnipeg by Guy Madden, like I was saying, and um, Eraserhead, which I know Matt's going to like like that one because he's he likes Eraserhead. Uh, David Lynch as well. He's fish, he's fish fist pumping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Tattoos on his leg. <laughs> oh, you got an eraser head tattoo? Yeah, I got Henry tattooed on my calf. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and, uh, do you have the lyrics to the song anywhere? No, I want to get I want to get the lady in the radiator on the other side of my leg. Yeah. 
Yeah, the in heaven everything will be fine. Everything is fine, yeah. <laughs> God, that movie's so incredibly unnerving, but you can't not watch it. But Blue Velvet by David Lynch. Mm. Freaking amazing. Um, yeah. That pe- that movie was just mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I can get into stuff like I love Empire Strikes Back. I love- <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, yeah. I love all those movies too. Right. I I love escapism as well, um, as much as the next person. But classic film to me is you know even silent Mm. film like Metropolis is. Yeah. Nineteen twenty six. Those are masterpieces of cinema. Yeah, you know I'm. You know I don't do. You know I've never done film, never written, never directed, never acted, never done anything. Um, but I, I mean, I'm a bit more than just a, you know, like I, I find my favorite directors and then I literally watch everything they've ever done. Oh yeah. Um, I, I'll, I watch the credits at the end of movies. You know, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I watch. Yeah. You know, I, I, there's a lot of things, and then I even went through. I went back and watched all of the, the, um, you know, winner, the Oscar winners from, yeah. from day one. And then I went back and watched all the top film 100. The, what's the film thing that, uh, that does the top 100 films of yeah. all time? Yeah. AFI. And I watched all of those and, you know, I, and I've always, and I've watched a ton of black and whites. I've never hardly watched any silence though, but you know, I've watched um, a lot of the old, old black and whites. And it's, it's an acquired taste for some people, but I would always yeah. show it film classes. I taught because it's a lost art form because we automatically just want to digital digitally do it now. And I'm kind of like Christopher Nolan, love him. Um, if I can do as much practical as I can, I'd rather do that because it just makes the film feel, feel a little more real. Now, if you can, if you can get um, something by me, that's CG Bravo, you did a great job, but that's why I like the Lord of the Rings movies because it's a mixture of CG and forced perspective and miniatures. I love that mixture of just those styles mm. of filmmaking. I think it just makes a cooler film to me. Mm. Um, but it it becomes more artful to me. Not that mm-hmm. digital art and people doing digital is not, but there's just a different way about right. it. Like when they yeah. built, when you look at the at the set for Minas Tirith and how big that thing was for a miniature. Good God, I was like that took a lot of work and it mm-hmm. was amazing. So, well, let's talk about your most recent uh, documentary. Documentary. Okay. The one that just released. Um, it looked to me like you started this project in 2018. Is that right? That's when we announced it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for the, let's just like fill our audience in a little bit. You cross paths evidently or discovered somehow I- a, a, uh, a former pro wrestler mm-hmm. who was selling jewelry in Springfield. Yeah. Is that so, correct? Yeah. Um, pretty much because I worked on a show locally. There's a talk show called the mystery hour and he was a guest on the show 
and he's up there talking. I was just laughing. He was a funny guy, a great storyteller. And then he brings up this picture of him and Andre the Giant, where Andre is literally holding him up on his shoulder. And I'm just sitting there just like, how have I not heard of this guy? So it stuck in the back of my mind. I had to finish another project first. But as soon as that project was done, I called him. And I went and met him and at a little European cafe here in town on the square. And we, I mean, we talked for two hours or so. And I mean, I was just hearing his stories about him and Randy Savage when Savage was still playing baseball. So he had to wear a mask when he was wrestling. <laughs> uh-huh. So he could get away with it. Uh, hearing stories about Dusty Rhodes, Andre the Giant. He, I was just blown away by this guy's life. And I just went with my gut and I'm like, there's something that needs to be told in this. And so I was like, can I do, can I tell your story as a documentary? And we talked about it and came up with and you know, agreed how we'd do it. It was kind of off to the races. Then it took a lot longer than I wanted it to. A pandemic definitely played in the part of that. <laughs> um, Cause we were trying to put the final stages and then the pandemic hit that just <laughs> derailed everything there. But I spent two years trying to find footage of him wrestling and all trails led to WWE buying out all these archives in the last 10 years. And I even had a lawyer contact WWE just so I, I just, I, I was either, I knew I was either going to get a no or a huge number or I'd be ignored. I was ignored every time. And even when I had a lawyer contact, I'm trying to be professional. And, and let's give this guy's name. His name is. His wrestling name was Mike Pappas, the flying Greek. That's what his wrestling name. Mike was. Pappas, the flying Greek. His real name is. Manoli Savinas. He's from okay. So, and, uh, and he uh, would wrestle. His wrestling career was in the seventies. Yeah. He started in late sixties uh, through the seventies. Okay. Yeah. I say, right. We always say from like, there was a 10 year span between in the sixties and seventies that he was okay. about 78. All right. And cool. he really, so you, you got a lawyer to contact WWE to find film footage of this guy yeah, wrestling just, just to see. Cause like all the trails that I had been down had led people saying, well, WWE network just bought us out like a year ago. And so I knew that they had footage. I just needed to get them to tell me yes, no, here's how much it's going to cost. Or they would ignore me and they ignored us. So um, I, it forced me to get creative because he could actually still fit in his wrestling attire. And so I did some shots of him kind of like, I called them dream match shots where we got like a light pointing straight down, got a fog machine and had a black backdrop and did these kind of artsy shots of in, in and out of focus of him wrestling somebody and putting on his old gear, you know, it was a lot of fun. And um, it also gave it a really good opportunity. And he actually got me in the ring and showed it was basically showing me the ropes, like how to throw a forearm properly and how to take a fall. And we did, you know, it was just, it was fun. It was, it was great fun. And when it was finally done, um, it was really, you know, I use the word surreal a lot just because when you finish, when you finish a project, it's kind of like, it seems like a dream because you work so hard on it. Now it seems so far behind you since you started it and he tells me hey i'm suffering from colon cancer stage four and 
that hit me hard because my grandfather had passed away from colon cancer about God, it's been six years. Yeah. Yeah. Five or six years ago. And um, so that hit me hard. And so I knew we needed to show the film because with, with that, he, he could still be around for five more years or he could, we don't know. So we um, kind of threw it into overdrive and picked a date in early December. And um, actually, I think a couple of weeks before the premiere, he called me and said that his cancer had shrunk by 60%. It was mm. a good shape. So uh, that was exciting. And especially leading up and going into the premiere here locally. And we actually got, I, I actually got, not just me, but we all did. The film got to a film festival and it's my first actual film festival. Like I've been in web fest for the last like 10 or 12 years for the web um, series we've done. So this got into the Santa Fe film festival in New Mexico. And so I'm trying to figure out a way to go to that. The flying Greek Mm -hmm. is going to be premiered. Is that what you'd say? Or well, we well, just you entered it we there. Had, we had a premiere essentially in um, Springfield. Springfield but on December tenth. Is that right? Yeah, that's when we had it. Yeah. Okay. But we not too long ago, and at the Fox Theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the historic Fox Theater that's been down in the square since the thirties. Okay. It's, Did that go well? Oh, it went extremely well. I'm. I was very. Um, happy that for the turnout we got i think yeah. we would have more but it was storming really bad that night okay i was kind of anxious because i was sitting there going please don't lose power in the middle of the film mm-hmm. power in the middle of the film how long is it it's only 45 minutes believe it or not okay um, i got to a point where i was trying to push it to an hour and i could tell that i I was forcing it. I could, when I'm watching it, I could just tell it was not meshing together. So we cut 15 minutes out of it and it, it worked extremely mm. well. That being said, there's a lot of stuff that we didn't use. And so I am actually, I've got five episodes cut so far, but we are actually taking audio from the stuff we didn't use. And we're doing an audio documentary companion piece. That's going to be on podcast. Hmm. but all audio of the stuff we didn't use, like all his wrestling stories, like where he got his jaw dislocated in a match and things like that. Hmm. Yeah. What stands out to you in his career that, that made you want to tell this story? That he had done so much and was getting bigger pops from the crowds in the original Madison square garden than Harley race. And I had multiple people tell me that he like he would he would be walking to the ring and you would think the champion had just walked in. But no, it was him, it was Mike Pappas, because he was just that entertaining. He was doing things. I mean, if you see pictures of his drop kick, I mean it's the most perfect parallel drop kick I've ever seen in my life. And he was doing flying head scissors. I mean, he was doing things that seem so normal now in wrestling that people just blown away by him and also his you know the heartbreak of his story you know where a promoter would promise him something and then wouldn't follow through and it would kind of he would get screwed over essentially and you know um, a lot of wrestlers have tales like that but there was just something about this guy who was a really small guy who how tall is he 
God, uh, five, six, five. Yeah, five. I, I, I was trying to guess from pictures I've seen of him, but he looks so small. Yeah. Yeah. There's one of him at the premiere of me where we did like a wrestling pose together, and you could see how much smaller he is compared to me. But he, like, you know, he was this larger than life character, and he was a small guy. Mm. And he just, people, some people just walked over him because mm. they didn't like him because he was getting bigger pops from the crowd than they were. Mm. And I, I have, I, you know, I've seen documentaries on Hulk Hogan. I've seen documentaries on dusty roads. I wanted to tell a story about a guy. Like when you see that picture of Andre holding him on the shoulder, mm-hmm. the Andre, the giant documentary is really good that they did. But to me, I was like, I want to know about him. I know about Andre, but what's this guy on his shoulder? What's his story? And that's kind of the way I tried to approach it. Mm. Yeah. And he's here. He is living in Springfield. Yeah. How does it, how do you wind up in Springfield selling, he had, selling he had, jewelry? Is he, well, his jewelry, he, he learned that trade when he was a kid in Greece. So he okay. can have jewelry. Um, he had learned that as a trade in Greece when he was a kid and he had done it off and on through while, while he was here in America and living here when he got here. But um, he had tr- traveled through Springfield and had done a couple of shows as a wrestler. And he really liked the area. And that was simply it. Whenever he hmm. retired or okay. wrestling, he just kind of came to this area. He liked Interesting. It. He calls himself the Greek hillbilly now. The Greek hillbilly? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, um how do you, so you're like, one of the things you talk about is education. So you've taught film mm-hmm. s- stuff in what high schools, universities, that kind of um, thing. I taught adjunct faculty at Missouri state for a couple, couple of years. And what, what courses have you taught? I, one of the big ones I taught was media 365. And that was a crash course in writing, directing, editing, producing and filming. It was like crash course in the whole thing where they yeah. had to cut two or three short films in the semester. What, um, you know, we, I always try to talk about spirituality some way or another. And as you're, you're a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, there's, you know, there's just, I don't know, just the human spirit, the, uh, the way that, um, the way that we find connection with ourselves, others, and something bigger than us is a, is all a part of the spirituality. And for me, creativity, you know, capturing other people's stories is, I don't know, there's something about that, that, that for me has a spiritual nature to it. And I'm not trying to define that so much as I am just, you know, just reflect on it. I'm just curious what your, what your spiritual journey is, how you may, do you even think about that kind of stuff when you're, in your, in your work and that kind of, I don't, I'm just curious. My, my spiritual journey is interesting because I kind of have a little bit of religious trauma um, that I actually started exploring during quarantine through experimental film. And my wife, who is a school counselor, helped me kind of understand a few things about that. And Um, going to church as a kid, it was never a family thing. 
it was, that did this. It was just people in church in general. And the one thing at this church that I kept getting told as a kid was, if your next thought or breath is not for God, you are essentially sinning because you're not living the way he wants you to live. I got told that more than once as a kid, younger than 10 and in my teens by people in this church and the church camp I went to. And it caused me to have, it, it was actually the cause of my OCDs because whenever I was real, Oh, oh crap. I haven't been thinking about God or yeah, <laughs> I, started, I, started, <laughs> I, started, I started to repent. Oh my I started, gosh. I started to repent. And <laughs> wow. it, became, it became a repetitiveness Interesting. And it, I really went down the rabbit hole. The one thing, and and some people are like, well, that's stupid. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's a psychological thing, but whatever. (laughs) Um, I stepped away from church and I'm still currently not like a full-time member of any church, but I had to step away because whenever I would walk through the church, uh, church doors, I was triggered by that. And I would get into that mindset because it's almost like you're conditioned at that point. And I had to step away from it in order. And when I did that, I saw my OCDs really Hmm. decrease because that was the trigger mechanism. Interesting. But, um, and for me, it's been an interesting journey because, you know, there's been a lot of things that I've um, changed since growing up and, you know, Matt, Matt will know what I'm talking about. The fishbowl effect of growing up in a small town when you kind of look back into it going, I was a part of all that drama. (laughs) And when you actually get out into the real world and start experiencing things and um, people, you know, when you start to say, well, I believe this now and your former youth pastors attack you on social media to the point that it makes your wife cry. It's very disheartening because I feel like at some point people have lost the plot um, and it's just, you know, and like I said before, to each their own, because everybody's journey is different and we all come from different, you know, life from different angles. This just happens to be my angle that I've had. Mm-hmm. And, um, there are people who just use, I feel use religion in general, not just Christianity, any religion in general to manipulate easily because especially now in today's age i feel that we are really the world doesn't make sense anymore it really doesn't as much as it used to or what we thought made sense after quarantine and i think we're all grasping at anything to make sense of it to make any sort of sense of what's going on, make ourselves feel better. And I feel that a lot of people who do that, um, how we done in a second? <laughs> um, sorry, my daughter. Yeah. But 
the and I'm not trying to get too deep on this, but like it's sorry, she distracted me. I forgot where I was. Um, sorry, people uh, using religions to yes, thank to, you, Matt. Thank you, sir. Um, since we're in a weird time in our world, like I feel like now we're people in general everywhere are looking for anything to grasp onto to make sense of what's going on to make themselves feel better and it opens up a little bit of a dangerous door because if you're trying to accept and find anything that makes sense to make yourself feel better i feel like that's when you people can easily be manipulated into different things now, does that mean that the church itself is manipulating people? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there are people who are using those certain things to bring people in um, more easily because they're more susceptible, if that makes sense. And that's when you start getting conspiracy theory groups. You start getting cults more than anything, cult-like mentalities. And it can be a very dangerous line to walk and that's just religions in general because people yeah. take any any you can take any aspect of christianity or you can take muslim you could take atheist you could take anything mm-hmm. and if the person's looking for something to make sense of the world and you play to what they're wanting to hear you know i mean think about that with some of the um you know suicide bombers that get sucked in to um those jihad groups mm-hmm. um and people are manipulating using religion and different things and situations to manipulate a situation mm-hmm. you know something and mm-hmm. to me i think it's a right now we're kind of in a very strange time um in in quarantine, I really explored that a couple of my experimental films yeah. that I when I had time, and it, you know, I'm not saying I'm right, but that's just, I, you know, yeah. <laughs> a lot of time thinks I'm sitting at home and I'm just editing and really just thinking about these things, and yeah. it's one of those things that just, um, it's a like everything right now feels very raw when it comes to talking about spirituality or because everything kind of feels meshed together in some way, shape or form, because you could sit there and say, you know, just as an example, I'm not trying to shoot this is an example. You could have people who are QAnon believers and saying they're Christian, but over here you could have a group of Christians who are not QAnon, but they all believe the same thing. So everything becomes feels kind of meshed together. So, you know, it's kind of like with Republicans and Democrats, do you believe in abortion? No. Oh, so you're, you know, a Democrat. No, I still blah, blah, blah. You know, people automatically assume and mesh these different things mm-hmm. together because the ideologies become intermingled. And I think that's on purpose on some level, but you know, I'm not a yeah. political scientist by any means. So, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, Religious trauma is a real deal and certainly, um, you know, the stories of wounding that's happened to people through religion are 
and they're just off the charts. Right. It's crazy. And, uh, and I don't know that, you know, sometimes even, happens unintentionally with in, in oh, those, yeah, I, all I, those worlds, like you know, but, but especially uh, with like those people telling me what they told me, I don't think they were probably doing it on purpose. I think they were genuinely just trying to tell me what they believed, but as a young kid, yeah, you know, I yeah, just, that's a, that's I a tough standard. Like if, if you have a, if your next thought isn't God, then you don't really love God. Yeah, I mean, I was drunk through the. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was drunk uh, through the. Like when I started making my films, people were always like, "Hey, when are you going to make a Jesus film?" <laughs> hey, when you, I, I did one for church one time, but I did it on my terms. I didn't want to make, I, so it was kind of like a silent film mashup. But um, they were like, "Well, when are you going to make a really like a big one?" And I was thinking, if I make one you're probably not going to like it because I mean, like if I tell the story of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was not a very clean person and ate, ate, but he looked like a homeless dude, you know, and he's perceived as a different, you know what I mean? And so yeah. it's kind of like, I, I like that raw, like that, that approach to the film, like to yeah. make storytelling, you know? Yeah. What, um, like, did you have a moment in making this documentary of the, uh, the flying Greek documentary that, that you found is like something that really felt very inspirational, but what doesn't really fit in the box of church or religion or anything like that. You know what I mean? But it was like super spiritual or, or, or or it's just inspirational. Just want to throw the spiritual word out and just use the word inspirational. It is, man, there's a lot of stuff that been like, even between takes when you would just talk to him, he was always, and he still is to this day, so encouraging. He may not even know you. And I remember after just meeting him a couple times, he was always just, he, when he asked you, how are you doing? It didn't feel like just a conversation starter. He genuinely wanted to know. And he still, when I see him, how are you doing, Jason? And I can tell him because I, I can tell he genuinely wants to know how I'm doing. It's not just a, a moment for a small conversation. You know, he wants to know. He wants to, you know, really, you know, kind of have that um, one-on-one with you. And I've, ever since the beginning of that f- filmmaking, I've always been like, oh, we're going to go film Manoli. And I knew I was going to enjoy it. No yeah. matter what we were talking about and what we were doing, it was always a very, you know, um, philosophical experience because he always would bring his kind of unique philosophy to life. And it was just, hmm. you know, a lot of it has stuck with me. A That's lot cool. of it had really stuck it's with me. Is it, did he, did he also help start a Greek Orthodox church in Springfield? Did I read that right? Yeah, he did. And we didn't really go into much detail yeah. on some of that. Uh-huh. Just there was, I, I don't, I think there was something that happened there that um, they didn't want to talk about, which I thought okay. was fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just yeah, curious. They I just did. thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, <laughs> angle, well, he, you know? yeah. He helped um, do that. And, you know, I even tried to put that into, in the film, but it just kind of felt like, um, something that really didn't fit. Didn't, yeah. Yeah. 
weird to be in there. It's kind of like it felt like, oh, and by the way, here's this. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> really but yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, how can people uh, find your work? If people are wanting to watch your stuff, find your work, connect with you, how do they do that? Right. I'm on um, Facebook. I'm on Twitter, at, you know, Jason Brazier Film and on Instagram. And Jason Brazier, B R A I S E R. Jason. B R A S I E R. B R A S I E R. S I E R. Sorry. No, you're cool. I spelled it wrong on my thing here. I'm glad I spelled it out. B R A S I I E R. Okay. Yeah. And it's, uh, I'm on, you, I'm on YouTube right now. You can look my my channel is actually called Unconscious. Uh, well, I can't talk. Unconscious streams. <laughs> Unconscious has, streams. Okay. Yeah, and it has a lot of my web series. It has everything I've kind of done. Amalgamation of everything. Um, my my website's going to be getting revamped in the new year. I have it down right now because I'm going to be revamping it so I can have some video on demand stuff of my. And is that uh, the experimental film odyssey? Uh, no, that's my online, um, that's my online, uh, experimental film festival that I'm doing as well. Um, I just became an, enamored with that during quarantine and I saw, um, a need for something that just focused on it. And I really find the art side of film and that very inspirational. And so we just had our first one and it had a, re- had a really great turnout for it being online and streaming and, um, gonna be doing that again. All right. Cool. And then this new documentary, nope, people can't really access it right now, right? Not, not at the moment. We right. are going to have an online showing in the new year sometime. I don't know what that's going to be just yet. Just because when you're sending stuff out to festivals, they don't really like it if you've had a mass release. So mm-hmm. we're trying to walk the line on that a little bit at the mm-hmm. moment just so we can get to a couple more festivals and see if we can get some awards behind it. My hope would be that I can release it fully um, either on Blu-ray or DVD, so, you know, I think we'll start exploring that. And, so if you know, get it into the Kansas city film festival, mm-hmm. I would love it that. comes out in what the, when does the Kansas city film festival in the spring? Uh, yeah. I'd have to look and see. Oh. I think that sounds right. People could see it there. <laughs> yes. Yes. I would absolutely. Kansas city folks anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jason, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate you doing that. Love the, love the Matt connection, the Willow connection, all that stuff. Wrestling in the backyard. Oh yeah. Matt's Matt's wrestling name was what? Matt mayhem. Matt mayhem. All right. And you actually have film footage of this. It's on YouTube. You can watch the pay-per-view. It was called uh, CWA Carnage. <laughs> CWA Carnage. Matt. It's on my YouTube channel. You can watch the Matt whole- mayhem wrestling in the backyard with Jason <laughs> Brazier. And what was your wrestling name, Jason? I had a couple, but during that, since it was a church type, of, <laughs> I, I think we, I think Matt, didn't we call me the, the disciple or something? Yeah. Oh, the disciple. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, he loved that. Yeah. <laughs> my finishing move though. But do you remember my finishing moves name? Uh, Matt, you're the one that came, you're the one that came up with the name. Uh, I can't think of it. Divine intervention. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I forgot. 
All right. And it was high at DDT. I love that. <laughs> I you know, that. not quite as good as rapper names, but at any rate, we'll right. go. We'll go. <laughs> it is what it is. If I, if I wasn't a disciple, I was Jason Extreme. So there you go. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jason. Great to talk with you. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures, and we'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.